when uh, you can open your Bible to Matthew 18, if you have a Bible with you. When, when you think about greatness, what, what is it that you think of? What, what comes to mind? Perhaps um, presidents come to mind. I don't want to start a fight today, but who, who, who do you think is the greatest American president? Rhetorical question, no answers, please. <laughs> but we, we, have, we have a mountain dedicated to four great presidents, right? What about, what about athletes? This might start a fight too, but uh, when you think about who, who's the greatest NFL quarterback, there's probably a few names that come to mind, right? Montana, Elway, Manning. What about the greatest soccer player? Yeah, that's what I thought. Nobody cares about soccer, right? <laughs> this is America. <laughs> Does anybody even know one soccer player's name? Pele, okay, there we go. I'll give you that. He's the greatest by default just because he's the name we know. <clears throat> what do you think of when you think about the greatest Olympic athlete? Do you think of somebody like uh, Michael Phelps, who uh, is the most decorated American Olympian? Or do you think about um, maybe our local celebrity, Ashton Eaton, the decathlete? Do you think of somebody like that? Here's a couple that might be a little bit easier. What do you think about when you think about the greatest NBA player that comes to mind? There, there are two names that come to mind, and only one is correct. <laughs> I'll leave you to figure out who that is. What do you think about when you think about the greatest professional boxer of all time? There's somebody that was the self-proclaimed greatest, right? Reminded us all the time about his greatness. What do you think about when you think about the greatest American entrepreneur? What kind of names come to mind? Do you think about people that have long since passed, like Rockefeller and Astor? Or do you think about uh, people who are still with us, like Musk? How about this? Who do you think of when you think of a great human being? And how, how do you measure just the greatness of a human being? Like you probably have somebody in your mind who you think, oh, they're a really good person. What, what measure do you use to determine the greatness of, of a human being? What about the greatest Bible character? Jesus aside, right? That, that's the obvious, but who, who, who would you say is the greatest Bible character aside from Jesus? What kind of names come to mind, and, and what do you base that on? What about, this might start a fight too, who, who's the greatest pastor? Right? Don't answer. <laughs> but but what, do, what do you measure that by? What, what do you... How do you measure the greatness of a pastor? Is it by their, their stage presence or their charisma, their leadership ability, <clears throat> the platform, um, an organization that they've built? What, what, how do you measure that? <clears throat> what about what just makes a great Christian in general? How do you measure that? Do, do you measure the greatness of a Christian by their ability to, to quote Scripture, to recall from their memory? Do you measure the greatness of a Christian by the good deeds that they do in the community or in their life? How do you measure greatness? Jesus' disciples in Matthew 18 ask him this question. It says, starting in verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now if you think about this, what we know of Jesus up to this point in Matthew Jesus has done some great things. Jesus has done some miracles. He's healed some people. Uh, a few of his disciples got to see a little bit of a peek behind the curtain in the transfiguration just a few passages before this. 
And they have the audacity to ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And I think probably what they might have meant is kind of among us, like among our group, who's the greatest, right? Which one of us is your favorite, maybe? Something like that. <clears throat> and so they ask really an audacious question. Jesus had done miracle after miracle. They saw the transfiguration. It's remarkable that the disciples would even have the audacity to ask this kind of a question. It's not just a bad question, but really at the end of the day, and what I hope that we'll see today is it's even the wrong question to be asking. I, I don't know how people are around the rest of the world, but us Westerners, we, we like to compete. <clears throat> we like to win. We like to earn things. And so we naturally are going to ask these kinds of questions about, well, who's, who's the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest disciple, the greatest follower of Christ? And what does it take to attain that title of the greatest? Right? And just, just tell me what I have to do. Tell me how much scripture I have to memorize. Tell me how many times I have to go to church. Tell me the amount of good deeds that I have to do to be considered the greatest. We might not say that out loud, but, but we all kind of think that way. <clears throat> right? Our, our competitive nature. <clears throat> have you ever thought about how Jesus would define greatness? So they're asking Jesus this question. And in verse 2, it says that Jesus called to himself a child. And he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, <clears throat> you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> so Jesus, never missing an opportunity to incorporate an object lesson right, with his disciples, Brand, don't know where the child came from. We're not given that information, but evidently they were around some people. And he grabs this child and he tells them that you must become like this child. Otherwise, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, <clears throat> there are some implications in this statement of Jesus. Unless you turn, there's an implication in that statement, unless you turn. It means we're going the wrong direction by default, right? It means that, that there's, there's a change that's needed to happen in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And if we look at the rest of the Bible, the Bible would tell us that our default as human beings is that we're on a crash course to death and to hell because of our sin. And so when Jesus says here, unless you turn, he, he's saying that there, there's a problem, there, there's a change in direction that's required in order for one to enter the kingdom of heaven. So unless you turn and you become like children, so, so not only is there a change in direction that's needed, but there's a change in really our, our identity and our being uh, that's needed where he says that you have to become like children. So it requires transformation. So there, there's a turning and a transforming that's required uh, according to Jesus' implications when he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like this children, this, these children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. One commentator had this to say on that verse specifically. He says that they, meaning the disciples, assumed they were in the kingdom. In other words, the saved community under Christ's kingship. And thus, their only concern was greatness. How many diadems will be on my crown compared to his and his and his? But Jesus turns the tables on them and he says, in essence, what you should be worried about with such an attitude as expressed in your question, is whether you are in the kingdom or not. Big-headed people can't fit through narrow gates. 
the implication of Jesus' statement is that change needs to happen, that, that our default is not that we're automatically in the kingdom of God. And we, we live in a, in a culture where there's kind of this assumption uh, among some people that because um, I subscribe to certain political views and because I was born in America, therefore I'm a Christian. And that's just simply not true. <clears throat> the, the Bible would not support that. <clears throat> we think of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a religious leader of his day, and he came to Jesus by night because he didn't want to be seen in the day with Jesus. And he asked Jesus these questions, and John chapter 3, starting in verse 3, Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the, enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so Jesus telling Nicodemus, reinforcing this idea that, that there's a, a, a transformation that needs to happen. Again, Jesus, never missing out an opportunity for an object lesson, tells Nicodemus that he needs to be born again, and Nicodemus doesn't quite get what Jesus is laying down. He's thinking that Jesus is talking about physically being born again, and, and just the ridiculousness of that statement of a grown man crawling into his mother and coming out again. It, it's ridiculous. It's an audacious statement, but that's not what Jesus is getting at. That's what Nicodemus is hearing, but it's not what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is talking about a spiritual rebirth that has to happen. Maybe you've heard, heard the phrase, somebody talk about being a born-again Christian. This is where it comes from. This is what it means to be born again, is to have a spiritual rebirth, not a physical rebirth. It would be impossible for us to have a physical rebirth. But within God's possibility that we would have spiritual rebirth if we repent and turn to Him, right? And Jesus again saying to Nicodemus that unless this spiritual rebirth happens, that one cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's a difference between being born of the flesh and being born of the Spirit. Later on, after Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, he would say at the end of the chapter, it says, whoever believes in the Son in John 3.36 has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so again, reinforcing this idea that our default position is that we are not in the kingdom of God as human beings. Now that, that's, that's bad news. It's not, it's not good news at all. But the good news is that we can be spiritually reborn, that we can turn and become as a child through Christ, and that's our ticket into the kingdom of heaven. That Christ can redeem, Christ can transform. Do you know how Jesus showed up? Right, th think about the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. They were always an oppressed people, always under somebody's thumb. And the great hope of Israel is that one day the Messiah would come and redeem this nation. And they finally get word that the Messiah has arrived. 
And how did the Messiah show up? Not, not on a horse ready to take names, not with a sword and a shield ready to fight, but the Messiah shows up as a baby, born of the Virgin Mary, and, and not born in, in a fancy house, but born in a barn. Smelly animals. Humble. Very unlikely for the Savior of all mankind to show up in the humble circumstances in which he did. Now, there's going to come a day when, when Jesus is going to come ready to take names. That's, that's coming. But the first advent of Christ is that he showed up in the most humble of circumstances, had to be raised, had to be reared, had to be fed, had to be clothed for a period of time in his life until he was self-sufficient as a human being. An unlikely way for the Savior of mankind to make his appearance on earth. Jesus came in humility. And so when we think about greatness in the context of who Jesus is, we can't separate greatness from humility. You just can't separate it. In verse 4 of Matthew 18, Jesus would say to his disciples, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is, a, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, our Bible tells us that there's a day coming, we sang about it this morning, when every knee will bow to Jesus as Lord and every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, that day is going to come. It's not here yet. But in between now and that day, we, we see the humility of Christ. And he's telling his disciples, again, using this object lesson, that, that we must become like this child. Now, what is he saying when he's saying that we must become like children? I've heard this taught before, is that, that as Christians, we should have childlike wonder and amazement at who God is. And I think that's true. I think Jesus is getting at more than that here. But, but I think, yeah, we should have childlike amazement at who God is and what he's done for us. But again, I think he's talking about more than just this kind of wonder. In the first century, children were not all that celebrated. I mean, nobody hated kids, but they weren't, just, they weren't celebrated in the first century. You would have kids kind of as a means to an end to work the farm when they got older, right? And until kids were old enough to kind of carry their own weight and help produce you know, food for the family or you know, work the family farm or the family business or whatever it was, they were considered kind of burdensome because they had needs, right? And, and they had to be taken care of. They needed to be cared for. They were dependent upon their parents for all of their needs to be met. And that's just part of being a child, right? Uh, all of you who have raised children, you, you know that, especially when, when, when they're babies, like they just need constant care and attention. As they get a little bit older, they become a little more self-sufficient, um, you know, we, we like to camp, and, and when our kids were little, camping just it sucked because they couldn't pack their own bags, they couldn't carry their bags, they couldn't help set up the tent. Like There was a period where we were just like, no, we're not going to camp until the kids can be old enough to pack their own bags, right? They're dependent upon their parents for their needs to be met, and I think what Jesus might be getting at is something more along these lines. 
is that as we become like children that we realize that we have a dependence on somebody greater than us. That we would realize that we have needs that can only be met in Christ. That we would realize that we're not as human beings as self-sufficient as we like to think that we are. Right? Especially us Westerners, we, we're, we're the self, most self-sufficient people on the planet, we think. But we have needs that can only be met by our Savior. I think Jesus is reminding his disciples and us that we're at a deficit. Even though we're all adults, that, that we're, we're at a deficit because we're, we're children of God. We have a deficit that can only be met in Him. And the only way to make up that deficit is to realize exactly that, that the, the A, that it exists, and the B, it can only be met in Christ. To be Christian is to be a child of God. To be Christian is to have God as our Father. To be Christian is to be cared for by God. To be Christian is to be disciplined by God. To be Christian is to be taught and to be dependent upon Him. To be Christian is to look to God in all humility as the one who meets our needs. Right? If, if it's true, we've talked about this before, if it's true that, that God has created the heavens and the earth and He's created human beings in His image and His likeness, if it's true that he's, he's made a way for us to have a spiritual rebirth, that, that ought to promote humility in the Christian. Humility was a marker of Christ. It should be a marker of the Christian. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is not the one who has achieved. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is not the one who has earned. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is not the smartest, not the fastest, not the brightest, not the most assertive. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who humbles himself, realizing that we're all children of God and that we all have needs that can only be met in him. God's kingdom is not about competition. I read an article one day that was talking about how churches market themselves. And that essentially church marketing is just saying, here's why my church is better than all the others. Competition. That's not has no place in the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is not about climbing the ladder. It's not about success. It's about realizing our human condition in which we all share. And it's one of depravity. It's one of need. It's one of deficit. It's been said by many a pastor that there is no uneven ground at the foot of the cross. Meaning that, that we all share in our need to be saved. We all share in our need to have a righteousness that doesn't come from within ourselves. We all share in that need. And if that's true, that ought to breed humility in us, especially as we consider how we interact and, and um, live with one another. I have the same need that you have. I have the same need to be saved from my sins. The kingdom of heaven is about realizing our depravity and the divine offer of righteousness, repenting and believing in faith that we can spiritually be born again only through Jesus' work on the cross. 
The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who realizes that he or she is not great at all. And that there's only one greatest, Jesus Christ, who showed us by example. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2 of the greatness of Christ. And he says this, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And here's what that one mind is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's our lesson in humility. And humility is a thing... Like, I could tell you right now, here are five things that you need to do to be humble, and some of you would just run out the door and start checking things off your list. <laughs> did it, did this, did this. That's not how humility works. Humility is not something, I don't think, that, that we can attain by trying to grasp it. Humility, I think, is more of a byproduct of understanding the gospel. Humility is something that, that wells up in us from our understanding of of our great depravity and God's great grace. It, it breeds humility in the Christian. I don't think it's something that we can just decide one day, you know what, I'm going to be more humble. It doesn't work that way. Because you know how long it would take for you to be like, I'm really, I was really humble today. right? Pat yourself. That's just how we're wired. It's not how humility works. Humility comes to us from our understanding of who we are in light of who Christ is. And when we begin to grasp that, Humility is just the natural flow of having a right understanding. And, and we see here the example of Christ, who being in the very form of God, we're told, considered that a thing not to be grasped. And what Paul is not saying is that Christ emptied himself of his deity. That's not what he's saying at all. Christ stepped into human flesh, born in humble circumstances to a humble family, he came not to be served, the Bible tells us, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and subjected himself to his own creation. Can you imagine the insult of that? I'm going to create all these people and then I'm going to step in and live among them and then they kill you? That's the humility of Christ. He emptied himself taking the form of a servant. And in light of that, we're told to have this mind among all of us, among all Christians, to have this same mind among all of us that we would do nothing from selfish ambition. When you think about the most selfish person you know, who is it? And if it's not, if you're not saying you, pointing the finger at yourself, then wrong answer. Right? You're the most selfish person that you know. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. 
So many things we do are out of selfish ambition. We don't even know all of the time, I don't think, the selfishness of our ambition. But we're told in humility to count others more significant than yourselves. That's a hard one. That's kind of up there with, with loving your enemies. Just, just a hard thing. Some of you, when I asked you earlier who's the, who's the best person that you know, you thought of yourself. I did. <laughs> we're, that's how we're wired. But we're told not only not to look to our own interests, but the interests of others. That's a hard thing because if it comes down to, like talking about competition, if it comes down to whose interests are more important, mine or yours, mine are going to win. Again, it's just how we're wired. But it's not what Christ showed us. He showed us what it looks like to not have selfish ambition or conceit. He showed us what it looked like to look to the interests solely of others and how he lived his life and the death that he died. And in that life and in that death, he conquered sin and he defeated death so that you and I can be spiritually reborn. Christ showed us what humility looks like perfectly. And he's telling his disciples here back in Matthew 18 that we must humble ourselves. Now, there's going to come a day we just read where every person is going to be humbled, willingly or unwillingly. It doesn't give any specification there. But there's going to come a day where everybody acknowledges who Christ is, and everybody will bend the knee to Christ. And we'll see the exaltation of Christ to the glory of God the Father. Now, if all of this is true, meaning that humility is the way of the Christian and humility is a result of our understanding of the gospel, humility is, is an outflow of Christ in us, what he says next in verse 5 of Matthew 18, th this is harsh. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but... Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. More, more bad news. Again, Jesus, I think, is talking about more than... I think he is talking about little children here, but I think he's also talking about more than just little children. Remember, we're all, we're all children of God. All of us. And so when he says, whoever receives one such child in my name, he, he could be speaking a double entendre here that, that yes, we children are important and receiving children are an important thing and not leading children into sin is an important thing. But he also might be talking about more than, he might be talking about children of God in general here and leading others into sin. Remember, in order to be a Christian, we must be born again, that we're children, not of flesh, but of the Spirit. And if that's true, we should naturally receive one another as children of God, as family, as those who have an equal need for deliverance from sin and from death. 
One pastor, I can't remember who said this, but I've heard it many times through the years. One pastor likened himself to a simple beggar showing other beggars where to find the bread. I love that analogy. We're, we're, all, we're all beggars at the foot of the cross. We're all beggars in that we have this depravity and this need for what Christ provides to us. Jesus went to great lengths to conquer sin and to conquer death. Sin is a big deal, right? And he tells us here that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for them to be drowned in the bottom of an ocean. Right? This is a harsh statement here. Everything that we do and we say as Christians, it reflects on Christ. Have you ever thought about that? I think sometimes we're pretty good at compartmentalizing, like you've got a, kind of our work life over here and maybe our church life over here and our, our recreation over here and, and, and you know, kind of the streams don't cross. But for the Christian, it, it infiltrates every aspect of our life. There should be no aspect of our life that's not infiltrated by our Christianity. And everything that we say and everything that we do has the ability to either push people away from Christ or to draw people to Christ. Turn, turn on the news just for a little bit and you'll, you'll see that there are a lot of Christians that are pushing people away from Christ in our current cultural moment because of the way they engage in the culture wars. And I'm not going to stand up here and advocate that we disengage from the culture wars, but looking at the culture war as a war, that, that's probably mistake number one. <laughs> at least not war in the way that we tend to think of it as war. Right? The Bible tells us that our battle is against things that we can't even see. Our battle is not against the things that we can see, and we often look at people and think of them as the enemy because they have different ideologies than we do, or they think differently than we do, or they're part of a, a different political party than we are. And we tend to treat them as the enemy and we engage them as such. Let me just say, not Christian behavior. We, we battle against things that we can't see, according to the Bible. We, we battle against the powers and the principalities of the air. Our, our enemy is the devil, right? Not, not the person sitting next to you or not the person that lives across the street from you. Everything that we do or say can, can attract or to re repel people to Christ. And so think about as, as we engage the culture, and as we engage ideologies that we would consider to be not Christian, how do we go about that in the context of the greatest in the kingdom? How do we go about that in humility? Now, there's a difference between humility and passivity. I'm not talking about passivity. But how do we do what Christ did and empty ourselves and consider others to be better than ourselves and to look to the needs of others before we look to the needs of our, ourselves? How do we do that? It's a hard thing to do. But if in our efforts we are selfish and we are prideful, which those things rear their ugly heads in all of our lives, and we lead somebody else into sin, Jesus is telling us that's a big deal. That's a big deal, and, and we ought to consider that. If 
for the Christian, we tend to get things so backwards. We try to assert our dominance. We try to compete. We work to defeat our enemies, and those things sound good and noble, especially when we can point to the enemy and say they're bad. But that's not the way of Christ. It might seem intuitive to us, but it's so backwards from how Jesus lived and so backwards from what he's telling us here. Maybe to simplify this a little bit, there, there are a lot of Christians out there who are just simply weirdos. And there are a lot of Christians out there who are just simply jerks. Nobody in here, I'm, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. <laughs> don't worry about that. But there are a lot of Christians who don't represent the Christ very well. right? And, and as Christians or little Christ, we ought to have some semblance of the Christ in how we present ourselves to people, knowing that everything we say and do can either attract people to Christ or repel people from Him. And so I would just ask you to consider your engagement in society and what that looks like, and are you always endeavoring to try to attract people to Christ? I don't know anybody that's ever come to Christ as a result of losing an argument. I don't know that it's ever happened in, in the history of evangelism. I don't think anybody's ever come to Christ by losing a battle or being pointed to and spoken down to. I don't think that's ever happened in the history of evangelism. The Christian way is not necessarily to win elections, although I, I, I hope that more Christians run for office. We certainly could use it. But that's not the Bible's prescription for, for winning the battle is to go win elections. The Bible doesn't give us the prescription to necessarily reform society, although I hope Christians engage in things that will reform society. If there were anybody that could have reformed society in an instant, it, it would have been Jesus. Right? Jesus came not to reform society necessarily. Think about that. If there were ever anybody who could have won an election, it probably would have been Christ. And he didn't come to win office. He didn't come to defy tyranny. Although I think as Christians, we do have an obligation to stand up to these kinds of things at times and in ways. Jesus didn't even come to make bad people better, necessarily. Now, if we come to Christ, realizing that we are bad people, there, there should be things that become better in our life. But, but Christ's number one mission was not, to make, not even to make bad people better. Right? We can all find the bad people in society and point to them and complain about them. But the way of the Christian is like the beggar trying to show other beggars where to find the bread. That, that's the way of the Christian. And when we engage in society in other ways, right, try, trying to achieve, trying to compete, trying to win, at the end of the day, leading people into sin, it would be better to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And as we get into the rest of Matthew 18 and the, and the preceding passages, we'll see what Jesus has to say more fully about sin and how to deal with it. It's a big deal. But I would just bring this to a close today, again, asking you to consider how it is 
that you engage with society. How it is that you engage with your friends and with your family? And is it a posture of pride and arrogance and competition, or is it a posture of humility? See, the greatest in the kingdom, greatness in the kingdom can't be achieved by trying to achieve greatness. Kind of like humility, greatness really is just a byproduct at the end of the day of a right understanding of the gospel and living out that understanding of the gospel. So consider humility, consider if this is something that you struggle with, and I say if, but, but we, we all struggle with pride and humility. We're just, we're hardwired. We're proud people. We're hardwired for that. And it's something that we have to recognize and we have to battle every day and we have to ask God to help us in our battle with pride. We don't even always know when we're being prideful. Right? You ever have a moment where you realize later, like, ah, I, was a, I was an arrogant jerk. Right? We don't always realize it even in the moment. And so as we consider what it is to, to be a great Christian, that the greatest of Christians are the ones who don't view themselves as great at all. The greatest of Christians are the ones who have a humble faith, a reliant faith as, as children of the Father, realizing their deficit, realizing their need, realizing that it can only be met by knowing Christ. And then that breeds more humility when we come to Christ in that way. And we get to celebrate today communion of the Christ who humbled himself, who emptied himself, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, who, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed for us, who took the punishment of sin for us, right? We're reminded in communion that Christ did something for us that we were not able to do for ourselves, right? And so we celebrate communion on the last Sunday of every month here as a remembrance, the Bible tells us, to remember the gospel, to remember what Christ has done for us, to remember our depravity, to remember his righteousness that was imputed to us by his work on the cross. And so as we drink the cup and we eat the bread, we're remembered, we're, we're reminded of the gospel. We're reminded in a visible way that Christ's body was broken and that his blood was shed because we're great sinners and because he's a great savior. And so in a moment, the guys are going to come up and they're going to play some music and you are welcome to grab the elements and just go back to your seat. T take a moment to reflect on, on the goodness of God. Take a moment to reflect on the truth of the gospel. Take a moment to remember what Christ has done for you. Father, we're thankful this morning. We're thankful that you love us and that you care for us. We're thankful that, uh, that you did humble yourself and that you have shown us by example what true humility is. I would pray for us this morning that you would give us uh, fresh eyes to see and fresh ears to hear uh, the truth of the gospel and to consider it in a way that maybe we haven't considered it before that we would be reminded of what you've done for us, that we would consider um, just the implications of our faith and, and what it means as we engage with people around us, that we would continually be reminded that at the end of the day, we're children uh, of the Father who have needs, 
and that those needs can only be met in you. God, we're thankful that you've made a way for us. We're thankful that you uh, put up with us. We're thankful that you're patient with us. We're thankful that you uh, redeem us uh, from our sinfulness. Thankful for all of these things. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.